Hey everybody, welcome to the Creative Processing Podcast. My name is Joseph Gordon-Levitt. The premise of this show is to have a conversation about the creative process, all spurned by one spurned, all spawned, all sprung by, <laughs> by one question. And, uh, and I find a guest to talk to that I think would be particularly good at answering that question. This week, uh, I have a musician to talk to. Her name is Yuka Honda, and she's a fantastic artist. You might know her. She's one half of the duo Chibo Mato. Um, she's worked with musical artists that you've probably heard of, like the Beastie Boys and Yoko Ono and Sean Lennon. She's also worked with just a ton of fantastic musicians that might be less well-known, but are no less incredible Um Petra Hayden, Mike Watt, Modesky Martinwood, Mark Ribot, Caetano Veloso, Vincent Gallo. She does everything from more poppy music to uh, her, her latest work is called No Revenge Necessary, which is this multimedia operatic theater piece. She does so much great stuff, and she's a wonderful person to talk to. I've known her for years. She's a, she's a dear friend, and I adore her. I think you're going to really enjoy hearing our conversation. Um so I'm going to read the question that the conversation was based on. And uh, it comes from Melissa Hui from San Francisco. She asked, how much of creative expression is for ourselves versus others? This is in many ways the big question, I think, as far as uh, what's going to make anybody happy <laughs> as a creative person. And I don't think it's as simple as saying oh, well, just do it for yourself and, you know, the rest of the world, just fuck them. You know, I don't, I don't think that's, A, I don't think it's realistic, but B, it's, I don't think that's necessarily the, the way to a happy, creative life either. Now, making art for others doesn't necessarily mean you have to be, you know, playing for arenas full of thousands of fans, but including other people in your creative process or, or knowing that someone is going to receive what you've done I think is an important part of taking satisfaction but it shouldn't overshadow just the satisfaction that you yourself take and finding that balance is something that I personally still very much struggle with on a day-to-day basis like I took a couple years off acting at all just to be with my kids when I had kids and and then when I started again the first movie I did was a very arty movie that uh I wouldn't expect to like necessarily reach huge mainstream popularity, but it was something that inspired me a lot and it was really challenging and I got a lot out of doing it. And then the next movie I did, neither of these have come out yet, um, was like a really fun poppy action movie uh, with you know me and Jamie Foxx running around. And I loved doing both of those and they both sort of indicate different ends of this spectrum of... but. I don't know. It, it's complicated. I, I, I couldn't necessarily say that like, oh, well, the arty one was for me and the poppy one was for others because I like pop movies and some people like arty movies. So I don't think there's a there's a simple answer to this question. But I thought Yuka would be really good at answering this question because she does have such a balance in her work. Chibo Mato is the kind of thing like that music is like kind of anybody can love it and it make you smile and it's really poppy and it's been successful and and then she makes these you know just like right now she's working on this avant-garde you know operatic electronic piece which is probably for a much smaller audience but and probably I think more 
for herself, but she finds that balance and I think manages to be just full of joy. She's she, I don't know, she makes me happy when I talk to her anyway. Um, so I thought she'd be good to ask this question to, and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. So uh, let's get to it, ladies and gentlemen. Yuka Honda. Hey, Yuka. Hi. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So, okay, so each episode of this podcast, uh, it's, it's about one question about the creative process. And uh, we got that question from someone out there who I thought asked a really good question that you'd be very good at answering. Okay. So the question is from Melissa Hui. She's from San Francisco, California. And uh, her question is, how much of creative expression is for ourselves versus others and i thought you'd be really good at answering this question because of all the people i know it seems like you have a really good sense of that so how do you think about that balancing your creative expression being for yourself versus being for other people um it's a very good question um i don't really see it as my mind versus others I do want to express myself, but I also live in a world that I speak second language. So mm -hmm. I'm very conscious of um, when I speak, how to speak and what word to use, because it's not something that's very natural for me. Is your native language is Japanese? Yes, my native language is Japanese. Right. And I've lived here long enough to sometimes just babble, <laughs> say things out. But if I am expressing my ideas or art, I think maybe twice about how you will be receiving it. Yeah. Because I have to take this extra step. I'm not really sure if I'm communicating really well sometimes. The extra step to translate from your thoughts in Japanese to the words in English. Yes, but also my thoughts are not based in Japanese, to be honest, because I had to live in many different countries when I was a little child. Uh -huh. So I think my brain wasn't formed with Japanese as a base. I think my brain was formed with these images oh. and feelings, and they're more like clouds, <laughs> per se. <laughs> uh -huh. Even when I speak in Japanese, I think I'm translating these clouds into language, but because... Uh -huh. I did spend the majority of my childhood in Japan, so there's some naturalness that comes with that. It's easier to think and speak in Japanese. So there's, there are mixtures of ideas in my head that then I, let's say I'm trying to communicate my ideas with to you right now. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering constantly, there's a filter in my mind that how you may be perceiving what I'm saying. Sure. And I think my art is the same way. I do definitely want to make the art that first really satisfy me, myself, and my values, my desires, and my mm -hmm. intention. Mm -hmm. But I also do care about how it comes off. Um, audience is not this private entity. It's more of this crowd and... I have some ideas of what my audience may be, mm -hmm. and 
I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what the experiences are. And I do try to find a ground where I can communicate and hopefully inspire. And also, a lot of my art is contains mystery that are mystery to myself also. Yeah. And I have intention to invite people into this mystery world and wander together. So it's important for me to think in both terms. I don't know if I answered the question clearly, but... Yeah, really clearly. Yeah, there's, there's lots to go on there. So then uh, one thing just to pick up on, you're, you're talking about envisioning your audience and, and you use the word that it's a crowd, that it's a, it's a bunch of people. It's sort of a plurality. It's, it's not one single person. Do you ever... Because I know that when, when I'm, say, writing something or acting or doing any of the things that I get to do, sometimes I imagine an audience, which is more of a, I guess, crowd, like you say. But sometimes I imagine one single person. And sometimes I'll cycle through. I'll like read through what I've written with one particular person in mind. I'm imagining what they're experiencing while they're reading it. And then I'll read it again but imagine somebody else and try to kind of go through a number of different audience members or perspectives of how they might receive what I'm doing. Do you ever do that as well? Do you, do you imagine any specific individual in the audience or, or do you always just imagine a sort of a crowd of people? I actually do the same as you. So quite often I first run by my idea with my husband, who is also a great artist, I respect. Nels Klein. Nels uh, yeah. Klein. Yeah. A- and um, I run by him. I see his reaction. It doesn't always sway my basic idea. Right. But I see, I can see how much I communicated my idea to somebody who's very close to me. Right. Also who has a very high artistic values. A system in his head. He certainly does. Yeah, and and I do want to make something that impress him, mm-hmm. um, not in this flashy way, but I do want my impress maybe uh, too light of the world, but I do want to have an impact because, you know, I'm presenting something. I think it has to be for me at least. It has to be something special for them to spend their time. Mm-hmm. to experience my art. I don't mm-hmm. want it to be lame. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> and if Nels doesn't think it's lame, then that's a pretty good gauge of it not being lame. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love you two as a couple, by the way. You guys, oh, you, thank you. You're such an inspiration to both of you and the art that you both make, both together and uh, separately. I just love the fact that you guys are, are a couple. <laughs> it's really lovely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm like very much enjoying imagining these early conversations when a <laughs> when a musical thought is first forming in your head and you're presenting it to Nels. At what point, like, will you have maybe recorded a first version of something, or is it while you're just playing? You're like, hey, come over here. I'm let me play you something. Or how does that how does that go? It's different. It's case by case. I quite often don't want to play him something that's like still forming. I'm that way too, actually. There's a certain point of when something's still embryonic where I just can't show it to anybody, a single person, not even the people closest to me in my life, because any feedback at that point might, you know, it can be fragile when it's right at the very beginning. Yeah, I feel the same way. And I'm seeing certain potential in this embryo, but they may not see it and they may judge it too fast. So even though he's my husband, I may wait but quite often my idea involves stories. 
been working on opera, so it contains also story and dialogue, and and then I probably I run it by him very, a lot because this is no revenge necessary. Yes. Yeah, I was just listening to it. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, and I, I love the fact that you're you're playing with with story because I think a lot of the work that I have known you for over the years, and I could be wrong about this, but I didn't necessarily see as much of a narrative in, you know, for example, Chibo Mato. I'm sure there were stories in various songs, but like this is a whole big operatic theater piece. I'm really excited about this because I actually didn't know that I was going to become a musician. I wanted to become a writer. I wanted to really? write. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was my original intention of life. Wait, tell <laughs> me that story. How did that transition go? Okay, so I told you that I grew up in Europe when I was a child. Yeah. I lived in Germany and Denmark. It was very difficult to make friends at that time. I also happened to live in, in, live in a very conservative town and uh, very tiny villages, and I couldn't really make friends. So I spent a lot of childhood reading books, and I read the same books over and over and over. And so I always felt that my forte is to write stories because of this. And music came after... I took piano lessons when I was a kid. I was very bad, and my piano teacher told me to stop. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I grew up thinking that one thing I wouldn't do in my life is to play music. And I came to New York, and uh, somehow electronic music started to happen, and I found my niche. I don't know why. This was strange fate for, of mine, that I had a great luck in doing music and not so much luck in writing. Yeah. See, that's so interesting through the lens of this question of creative expression being for yourself versus being for other people, because I think, well, I, I have, but I think our culture generally sort of has a, we tend to think if you're doing it for yourself, there's something like virtuous or, or heroic about that. Whereas the degree to which you're doing it for others is somehow fake or somehow like not as honest I don't think it's that simple. I think we're all very much doing our creativity for ourselves and for others, and there's always components of both. But it's interesting, this story you're telling, where for yourself, you were drawn to writing, and a lot of the reinforcement you were getting from the outside world seemed to lead you towards music. Yes. When I started to experience a lot of things in American culture with American friends, and I also had this incredible luck to be surrounded by brilliant musicians, I landed in this space. I lived right by the Knitting Factory, uh-huh. a great music scene in New York. They were completely different from Japanese culture, and I got immersed into it, and I kind of lost my uh, desire for writing. And I was writing for a Japanese magazine, I was writing for Food Magazine, but I kind of dropped it and got really excited about learning uh, about music instruments, which were at the time pretty primitive Uh electronic instruments, and it took a lot of patience to operate them. Right. You know, I remember my first sampler was one megabyte. Uh (laughs) Took floppy disks and... um, Right. And I had patience and love for machines already. So 
I just got more excited about it, and I like being in community and, and exchanging ideas or writing of the synergy of people. This is a very important part of my expression, and I think this is why I love music because it's about making it with many people and. I'm constantly figuring out how to make a balance of. This was actually the original p- question, like how I want to do what I want to do with this person who does things in a different way, and how to make it work. I'm really, really interested in that. So, music became a really amazing place to express myself, but it wasn't.、Um, It wasn't something I intended. Right. Well, that's interesting because at first, when you described it, it sounded to me like you said, "Well, I, I was having more success at music, so I went that direction," and that made it sound like, "Okay, so then there's almost the the external is having a real impact." But then the way you just described it now, when you talked about your love and patience with the machines and how intrigued you were with these early primitive technologies of electronic music and How excited you got, and how it was turning you on more than the writing work you were doing. That sounds more internal, not more external. So I guess it's, I guess it maybe it's safe to say there's is a balance of both. Yeah, I think、um, now you made me realize it's、uh, to me it's not about really external, internal. It's about pipe between me and others, and a、I'm、pipe, li- a pipe. You know、uh-huh. where is this pipe? Because I have all these thoughts and I want to express them all, but not always people are ready to receive them. Then when you get together and and I express something, and then sometimes I can find a pipe where we can connect. Yeah. And I'm looking for this connection. I think this is my life is about. I'm hoping for more and more connection and communication. And I also want to hear what they are feeling about it, and and also want to hear what they are feeling without me being involved. I love that image of a pipe. I also like how it combines with the image you mentioned earlier of what's inside your head isn't necessarily words, but you you、uh, you used a metaphor of like a cloud inside your head, which I think is also a very vivid and accurate way to. Describe my own experience, and I think just the human experience that what you have going on inside your head is more infinite and more ephemeral than anything that can be reduced to simple quantifiable words or numbers or any such system. But in order to communicate with another human being, in order to get that cloud that you've got inside your head to somebody else, whether it's one person or a whole audience full of people, you need to find the right. Pipe to send that cloud through, and that pipe can be language like words, or it can be music as another kind of language, or various other ways that you can build a pipe to get that cloud inside your head to other people. Yeah, you summed it up so well. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> What you were also just mentioning that that I keyed in on was the collaborative nature of music, which has a lot to do with. This basic question of creative expression for yourself versus for others. Once you bring collaboration into that equation, that also changes it because when you're collaborating with someone, you are bringing your own clouds from inside your head, of course. But you're also you're trying to combine it with the clouds from other people's heads, and then present that to 
a larger audience. So how do you, you've done tons of amazing collaborations with incredible artists. How do you, when you're, when you're collaborating with them, how do you think about, okay, I'm going to bring myself to this, but I also have to consider their perspective and support that. How do you go about doing that? I have to say uh, that I have a pretty impressive list of people I have worked with, but um, collaboration level is very different per project. Right. And sometimes I'm just asked to play a note on the keyboard, <laughs> and, and sometimes I'm asked to produce. And I always find myself not so good when I'm asked to do, take a little part. Because I don't, I'm not educated, I'm self-taught, and I'm not trained musician. So, for example, I, I see my husband is a really trained and also very skillful musician. So you can invite him to any session and ask him to do little thing, big thing, do a sound design, play like country and western meets mm -hmm. punk rock. <laughs> say something, he has all these drawers and he can pull them off and execute them fabulously. Mm -hmm. And I don't really have that ability because I did music in my own way. I do better when I can be involved in a larger scale because I don't really have a technical skill to do a small part, but I kind of know how to put it together. It's kind of like um, cooking for me. When I cook, I don't really decide what to cook. I go to a market and I see what's available to me and what are the best thing for me. And I collect them and then I see what I can make with them, with my ability and my interest at the moment. Yeah. And I make something out of it. So in music, I'm best at coming up with idea how to fuse these things together. Sometimes, okay, so some, uh, I was asked to make this opera originally commissioned by National Sawdust. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh, I never made an opera. Like, what kind of thing do you want me to make? And they said, you can do anything you want. But I like to work with people who say, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. Mm -hmm. People don't want to tell me that because they don't want me to do things for them. But I'm actually such an egoist that... I really already have myself, what I want to do. Uh -huh. And I like to work with outside energy and find out how to express it in a way that if I'm speaking to you, I speak my idea in English. But if you are a Japanese person, I would speak in Japanese. But my idea itself doesn't change. Ah, uh, yeah. But, but you want someone to tell you whether to say it in English or whether to say it in Japanese. And that's why you prefer to have that kind of creative prompt, if you will. To go off of. Yeah, that's. I think that also relates to the first question. I do think about who's listening. You know, if I'm yeah. performing to an American audience, I, I really like doing it in English. But when I go to Japan and perform my song in English, I wonder, you know, how much I'm communicating. Right. And then if I'm in France, I speak a little bit of French. So maybe I want to do something in French so that they understand it better, but the content of what I'm doing or what I want to say doesn't change. There's something about you have to know what you're communicating. So I'm going to bring up then uh, another angle on this question of being creative for oneself versus being creative for others. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that in terms of commercial success? Because you've made various work that was, you know, 
quite popular and, and commercially successful. And then other work that's, you know, for probably a, a, you could say a more niche audience where one can't expect as much commercial success. And, and you, you earn a living as a musician. So money, I suppose, has to be somewhere in there. But how do you think about where commerce intersects with art? Um, it's very difficult for me because I think when I'm alone, I'm a lot more avant-garde. And like you, you said nicely, niche, but it's not the area that you really make money. The audience is very small and, and um, your popularity is much smaller, but there's a real me in there. And I think I do more pop stuff when I work with more pop person. For example, my partner in Chibamato, she's a lot more pop. Mm-hmm. Or if I have a singer, that usually makes it a lot more pop because people relate to singing and melodies. So I don't really have within me the distinction, like this is too pop or this is too avant-garde. It's all me. It's a, it has a, it's, it, there's a lot of luck involved. And, um, it's funny. I, think, I, I definitely think there's a lot of luck involved, especially when it comes to commercial success. I think that's a lot to do with luck. And broadening out to the question of, of art for yourself versus art for others, like how someone else or some audience outside of yourself is going to receive your creativity, that's... Really not under your control. It's not under my, it's it's not under anyone's control. You can't control that. Right. So it's a lot to do with luck as far as how anyone's going to receive it. Now, of course, you can predict it. Like you said, you can probably predict, hey, if I put, you know, a singer on this singing a verse and a chorus and then back to the verse and then another chorus, probably more people will connect with it than if we don't do that, if we do something less traditional. So to some degree, you can predict it and then you can customize your creativity to connect with more people. But even in doing that, how it's going to be received is just not up to you. And so I still don't feel like I have quite the answer of like, how much should I focus on just my own creative desires inside my own cloudy head? And how much should I focus on trying to build a pipe to the rest of the world? Yeah, um, I think sometimes people wonder about that because some people are capable of just doing things for others and, and maybe just make music that has hits and, and just doing that and be happy. But I can't do that like as a technically or emotionally. Be happy, that's a, that's a, that's a crucial part of it. How do you get to happiness with your creativity? I'm definitely the happiest when my song sounds good to me for weeks. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. You add the element of time if it endures over time. Yes, because sometimes I love the song that I just wrote, and then a week later I'm like, oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that's so funny. I have a similar thing in my head sometimes when I'm trying to make a decision, a creative decision. Mm-hmm. I... I imagine myself as an old man Mm. and I have this like morbid fantasy about the end of my life (laughs) that hopefully luck willing, I'll, I'll be an old man and I'll be able to look back on all the different things that I've made and I'll have assembled some kind of, you know, I imagine like a shelf of 
the things, all the things that I worked on that I spent my time trying to create. And when I'm trying to make a decision like, should I do this or how should I do it? I imagine that old man and I think, what's he going to think when he picks this thing up off the shelf? Is he going to say, oh, this was great. This is making me happy now in my, you know, last few days before I die. Or is he going to pick it up and be like, oh, this is so lame. It's just making me cringe. Um, I've heard this quote that said live a good life so that when you remember it when you're older you can live it again with great happiness great joy Mm -hmm. and what you just said reminded me of that I do think in, in the same way also for example, when I'm writing music for my opera, I would write like 20 ditties and let them hang out on, in my computer. Mm-hmm. And, and then t- in a week or t- 10 days, maybe because the deadline's approaching, mm-hmm. um, some song remain in my mind. And, and when I wake up, I hear it. When I'm taking a shower, I hear it. When I'm walking my dog, I hear it. And those are the songs that survives. That's great. That's a really useful way to do it. Mm. That's almost reminds me of like, if we're talking about, you know, making stuff for yourself versus for others, you could almost divide like making something that feels good to yourself in the present versus making something that will still make you feel good in the future. Yeah. I do want to feel good in the future. (laughs) Yeah. But do you think that there's just to argue the other side of the coin? Do you think that there's a danger of being too future oriented? Is there a value in, in trying to ignore that for a second and just focusing on what makes you feel good right at the present moment? Uh, I'm not sure because to me, future is such an arbitrary term. So I take it very lightly. I'm not really Mm -hmm. thinking like seriously, like, you know, when I'm, an old lady, like, you know, I'm not just that serious about uh, vetting it. I'm really serious about vetting it on the moment, and I tend to be the hardest vetter of what I do. So I reject a lot of songs, and sometimes I play them to Nels, and Nels was like, wow, this is great. And I go, oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I never know what I'm doing, really. I just have to go with my feeling, and I use that as a writer. And I use a lot of intuition and and hope for the best. Right. And then you get guidance from others once you've expressed your intuition. Yes and no. I don't really take guidance. I do see their reaction, and I may take it into account. But even for my husband, I don't always... Because I know that we fundamentally don't agree with everything and you know as just the nature of human and that's why it's interesting to be with other people so i don't always 100 percent alter what i'm doing because of what some people said but i do take it into account and keep it in, in in me and also he's not the only one i want to impress with all my respect to my husband sure there are also many other kind of people that i want to communicate so He's my definite first measurement, but I go farther. And at the end of the day, it's really, I have to be happy and I have to be proud or at least be able to stand by what I've done. So then in terms of collaborating, mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're collaborating, I, I know I'm, I'm skipping around a little bit, but when, when you're collaborating <laughs> with someone else, yeah, you have to stand by what you've done and you have to like, 
you can understand the perspective of someone else, but you're always, like you say, and I think this is really strong and good, you're always going to decide for yourself how you feel about any piece of input from someone else. Mm-hmm. But then when you're collaborating with someone else, what, what happens when you see it one way and they see it another way? How do you resolve that? Well, in music, usually, unless you have a 50-50 collaboration situation, usually you kind of have a leader or this is so-and-so's project. Right. If I'm invited to somebody else's project and, and some things happen in not the way that I believe, but it's not freaking me out in a way that I need to leave a room or something, that doesn't happen. Right. Usually I use it as my learning tool. Uh, um, to something that I, I want to study, I, I need, you know, there must be a way to, for me to learn. And I have so many things to learn in life. It's everywhere. So I use it kind of like as a motivation for me to learn other ideas or, mm. or, or expand my ideas. Just opening up my horizon is always good. That's a really nice way to frame it, too. I think like I was saying a second ago, oftentimes listening to input from the outside can be seen as uh, as somehow being untrue to oneself. But framing it in terms of learning sounds nice. Like I can learn from someone else's input and then I can incorporate it how I see fit, but it's an opportunity to learn. Yeah, I'd like to think that I'm an ongoing project and not the finished project. Mm-hmm. When I was young, I would resist because I felt I had so much insecurity that I felt hurt if my idea wasn't taken. Yeah. But now I understand that it's not about that. It's really about making something together. I'm interested in growing and I have the most pleasure when I feel like I'm growing and not when I feel like I'm finished and I can have it my way. I feel like in the last few years perhaps because the politics of the United States, as well as a lot of other places in the world. Entire uh, world. <laughs> yeah, are, are moving in a direction that runs contrary to the politics that you know, creative or artist-type folks generally hold. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there seems like a heightened, I mean, it's always been there, but there's a, a heightened sense of wanting art to send a message or to kind of make a make an impact on the world which when i think of that in in terms of the question we've been asking about making art for yourself versus making art for others making art in order to have an impact on the world is sort of definitively making art for others i suppose but i don't know how do you how do you think about that about like uh you know make making an impact on the world with your art is that then something you do for yourself or is is it then then something that's for others or how do you think about that? I think that um, I don't know how if I'm making an impact, but there's definitely a prayer that goes in my art. You know, when I was younger, I was just very strong headed. And my first instinct when I encounter the things that I don't agree, I would fight and I would immediately fight. And, you know, a very strong head girl. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Yoko Ono says, imagine peace. Mm-hmm. And um, I, th- I think about this word more and more today because I think it's important to fight and stand up for yourself and have that kind of impact in the world. But I also feel that 
we have to imagine where we want to arrive. Where I want to arrive is a peaceful world. In this world, I, I don't imagine that everybody will be thinking like me. I think right. all the humans still will be thinking differently and there will be many people who think completely differently from me or have different value. My goal is to be learn to live together and be decent and, and use the difference as a tool to make more progress. So I think about that and I put my prayer definitely into what I do. Um, never really directly, but I am thinking about that. I think music is a great tool for me because it's about making harmonies, and I also use a lot of dissonance sound, and I, I like to learn to combine different foreign elements and, and make something that's beautiful out of it. My goal is to make beauty out of weird different things. So that's my prayer in my art. Making beauty out of a lot of different things versus trying to convince the different things that they're wrong. Yeah. That's, uh, it's compelling and yet it's, it's hard, isn't it? Like nowadays when certain things feel so wrong. Yes, it's really difficult and it's challenging. But I think we, you know, just, uh, I was thinking about Joseph Campbell book in Power of Myth. He talks a lot, a lot about tribal ritual mm -hmm. and how that's missing from modern world where he says you know in tribal ritual in, when you like late teenager they do some kind of ceremony and f through that ceremony you have to become an adult you have to leave your child behind child you know you have to kill the child in you he says kill the child in you mm. and, and you have to become an adult and face now this complex scary you know sometimes they leave a child in a jungle and you have to survive you have to find the way on your own to come back to your tribe or you die right and i'm not suggesting it's a good thing but metaphorically i think the world is this insanely cruel violent horrible place with also great beautiful wonderful things involved and i think we have to face it as it is and easy is never going to be the answer and you think it's easy to sort of look at people we disagree with and demonize them yes it's easy and and also i am mad sometimes you know sometimes i want to punch my computer screen That's yeah me true. fucking too yeah yeah <laughs> um I'm not just saying like, oh, like love and, you know, celebrate everything. That's not what I'm saying. Sure. Um, and I don't think we can fix it in our lifetime. But I, I think we need to be constantly building the ground. And, and also, I think people need to have goal in our mind. The goal of, of this is what you mentioned a second ago, of imagining peace. Yes. Right. I love what you said that when we have peace it won't be the case that everyone just agrees with each other. That's not peace. And I think it's not realistic. Yeah. It's not realistic. I think, you know, if we are left with everybody who thinks like us, we'll still find some way to disagree. You know, there's still going to be a line in half of them and half of us. 
we can always draw the line. You know, I think right now the the line is the divide is getting bigger. I think it's very dangerous and it's awakening us and we need to fight that energy, the energy of division. So when you say we need to fight that division, I think a lot of folks who make art of various kinds, whether it's music or writing or anything else, feel a desire and urge to fight that division like you're talking about through our creativity somehow. And maybe it's idealistic to think that we can contribute, but we feel that urge nonetheless. I know I feel it. I think a lot of people do. Do you feel that? And how do you address that, that feeling? We have to take every step and every step counts, but we may not be rewarded. And I think that's when people get discouraged because we don't see the sign. And sometimes we don't get reward. You know, I think that's real life. Uh-huh. And, and it's really sad and depressing sometimes, you know, but I want to be realistic about that. I think if we have a goal in mind, like if you're sailing and if you want to achieve somewhere, you have to work with the wind, you have to work with current, and sometimes you have to take really far away around to get to where you go. Mm-hmm. And we need to encourage each other. I think that's really important because it's, it's hard and not spend so much energy on hating. And mm, I don't want to sound too, <laughs> it's all about love, but mm-hmm. I do also feel that have a love and have a good community around you, have good friends. These things are really most rewarding. Yeah. And then I make art and hopefully I get reward from art, but I get most reward from having friends. Mm-hmm. And anything I, I do or people do, sometimes it's important, but you don't get reward. And I don't think we should judge what we've done by the uh, amount of reward we get. Sometimes, like, you know, uh, I've done things that sometimes I felt like I got disproportional amount of reward. Yep, me too. And then sometimes I felt like, oh my God, like I didn't get any reward for all this effort. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, I've I've felt both of those. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's not relative, you know, they're kind of coincidence. Yeah, exactly. Oftentimes that reward is just about luck, whereas the feeling and the happiness, if you can disconnect it from that reward, then you're not reliant on it. And then you can you can sort of be responsible for your own happiness. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, uh, I, I have one more question. Okay. We've been getting a lot of different questions in for this podcast. And uh, I like to try to wrap up the episode with a weird question. Because some of the questions that come in are like universal and profound and like can spawn a whole hour of conversation and some of them are just weird so do you mind if i ask you a weird question yes i like weird questions (laughs) (laughs) okay all right so this question came from adam ford from east wallingford vermont what would you do if you were about to be run over by a truck uh (laughs) what would i do um, that's a good thing to think about. Um, I actually think this question ties into the first question because, <laughs> and I, I, I think about this kind of scenario probably more often than I should of like, right. what, what would I do if I were just about to die? Would I, would I go into myself? Would I reach out to another? Would I think of people in my life? Would I think about my past? Would I think about my, you know, 
my wife and my kids? Would I think about my mom? Like, would I say something? Would I want to communicate something to the outside world in my last moments? Or would I just, you know, go into myself and, and have my own internal process, which is why I think it connects to the, the episode's question. But I don't know. What, mm. what do you think? I think I would be more practical. I think if I had a moment to think and if I see the truck approaching and it's so fast that I don't have time to run to the side of the street, yeah. then I think I would see if the truck has any space below <laughs> and if I can duck it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> But wait, 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 hold on. Now let's say you can't, say you can't, say you know that like death is inevitable. Yeah. What do you do? Um, what's, what's that last moment? Then I probably would... Um, I don't want to hit it from my front side. Yeah. <laughs> Put my back. <laughs> I don't know why, but it feels less impactful. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that makes sense. I try to save my brain. Yeah. I think that I think that something this is this is maybe getting weird, but like <laughs> I actually I really think that something happens in your brain when you die. Oh. Uh, and I want like I just hope that when I die that my brain's not like incinerated or or something so that hopefully my brain can go through whatever process it's supposed to go on when when you die because I actually think that that process might feel infinite. That's so interesting. So you think that uh, your death is, is still experienced through your brain? That's my hunch. This is not really based on science. I've read some stuff about, you know, you know, they say that, uh, well, whatever. They say that there are certain chemicals that get released in your brain at the moment of death. And uh, these are the kinds of things I like reading and thinking about. But <laughs> I'm probably reading way too much into this question about getting hit by a truck. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine my 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 experience will be this once again cloud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think it will leave my body, uh -huh. but my brain's probably smushed by this truck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Yuka, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. You should keep that in. Thank you for listening to the Creative Processing Podcast. I want to especially thank the guest for this episode, Yuka Honda. Thank you to the folks who asked this week's questions, Melissa Hui and Adam Ford. Uh, Melissa is at Melissa Hui, H-U-I. And Adam Ford is at Puttyhead. You can get your questions in. Either email uh, creativeprocessing at hitrecord.org or just hashtag creativeprocessing on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Come check out Hit Record because we're making all kinds of collaborative art that's inspired by these episodes of creative processing. If you want to do more than just ask a question or write a comment, if you want to take that next step and be like, hey, what can we make? Are we drawing? Are we writing? Are we going to make a whole song or a short film that's inspired by some thought that came out of this podcast? That's what we've got going on on Hit Record. You can go to hitrecord.org slash creative processing. The producers of the Creative Processing Podcast are Lexi Tankersley and Raymond Way. Thanks to them. Audio produced by Keir Schmidt. Thanks to you, dude. Thanks to Cadence 13 and everybody at the Hit Record office. And most of all, thanks to you. I'll see you next week. Thanks again.